You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. My name is Shalma, and I'm a PhD student at NYU, and my co-host is Dan Hooper, theoretical physicist at Fermilab and the University of Chicago. In today's episode, we attempt to answer the question, why is our universe filled with anything at all? Why is it not just an empty black void? And the embarrassing thing is, we don't actually know. My name is Shalma. And I'm Dan. And you're listening to Why This Universe. This episode is a continuation of our first antimatter episode, so if you go back and listen to that one, you'll learn where the idea for antimatter came from and how physicists discovered it. And in that episode, we ended on a pretty big question. The idea is that every time matter is created in this universe, an equal quantity of something called antimatter is also made. But when matter and antimatter come in contact, they annihilate. So it's not clear why we ended up with more matter than antimatter in the universe. As always, Professor Dan Hooper is here to help explain. So every speculation that I would have come up with if I didn't know better would be that that very early portion of our universe's history would have had tons of matter and tons of antimatter, but in exactly equal quantities. And then under those conditions, those particles of matter would have annihilated with the particles of antimatter, turning into things like photons and other pure forms of energy. And frankly, no matter or antimatter would have been left. And that means that there would never been any protons or neutrons or electrons. That means there would have never been any atoms, no stars, no planets, no galaxies, and no us. So that can't be the story. Something must have prevented that from happening. What we know is that in order for the right amount, the observed amount of matter to have survived those first seconds after the Big Bang, there must have been, for every 10 billion particles of antimatter, there must have been about 10 billion and one particles of matter. So a slight asymmetry between the matter and antimatter Um, in that very early uh, period of time. So before we start talking about the possible explanations for this matter-antimatter asymmetry, as it's called, we first have to make sure that we're asking the right question. After all, just because we don't see antimatter in our day-to-day lives doesn't mean that it's not somewhere else in the universe. I mean, it, it certainly seems like our universe is mostly filled with matter and not with very much antimatter. But in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, people took it pretty seriously that maybe out there in the universe, there were parts of space that were mostly filled with antimatter instead. After all, if you have matter and antimatter in the same place, they will destroy each other. They'll annihilate, releasing a bunch of energy. But if you have some stars that are totally made of antimatter or planets that are totally made of antimatter or galaxies or even regions containing many, many galaxies, as long as they stay away from the matter, they would look just like ordinary stars, planets, and galaxies. But even though it's possible, it turns out that we don't see any hints of any antimatter regions out there. When matter and antimatter annihilate with each other, they make light with some very distinctive signatures or properties. So if I take an electron and a positron and I put them together and I have them annihilate, they're going to make a pair of photons with a very specific amount of energy, 511 kiloelectron volts, which is the mass of the electron. If there were regions of antimatter out there in the universe, 
The boundaries between the regions of matter and antimatter would produce lots of this kind of light, since at those boundaries, matter and antimatter would be constantly annihilating. So we can take gamma ray telescopes or even X-ray telescopes and look for those specific kinds of light. And that tells us how much matter and antimatter is annihilating out there. We see some of it. We see some from the center of our galaxy and, and places like that, but not nearly enough to suggest that there are any boundaries where uh, matter and antimatter domains are meeting or something. I think at this point, it's pretty clear that throughout the entire observable universe, there are no large regions dominated by antimatter. And observations can tell us something else about when all this antimatter disappeared. By studying how galaxies and galaxy clusters are distributed through space and how they expand, cosmologists understand pretty well how the last few billion years of cosmic history have played out. And the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background, gives us a snapshot of what the universe looked like when it was just a few hundred thousand years old. And we can go back even earlier. We can look at the abundances of different kinds of nuclear species like hydrogen, deuterium, helium, lithium, and beryllium in the universe. These were all elements that were forged through nuclear fusion um, in the first seconds and minutes after the Big Bang. And, well, the theory predicts a certain ratio of those elements, and that matches observations. So we're pretty sure we understand how our universe has expanded and cooled and evolved from, say, a few seconds after the Big Bang to the present. And those predictions assume that the universe was dominated by matter that whole time. So we know from roughly a second after the Big Bang to the present, our universe was matter-dominated. It did not have much antimatter in it. So whenever the antimatter was wiped out, it must have been sometime in that first second or so, and probably much earlier than that. And so the only reason we exist, and the only reason stars and planets and galaxies exist, is because of that tiny difference. That one extra matter particle for every 10 billion antimatter particles in those first few seconds after the Big Bang. And physicists still don't know why this happened. But one of the influential players in starting to answer this question was a man named Andrei Sakharov. So Andrei Sakharov was a physicist in the early nuclear age. He was uh, in the Soviet Union and got his PhD in 1947, and he started working right away on the Soviet nuclear weapons program. Then by the late 50s, uh, Sakharov and a lot of his colleagues started to have misgivings about uh, the, the nuclear age and uh, the possibility of mutual destruction. Um, and he became politically active and advocated for what would eventually become the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, signed in 1963. Um, these and other kinds of advocacy ultimately uh, earned him the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975. <laughs> it's like he created the problem and then he tried to solve it. <laughs> yep. So in the mid-1960s, Sakharov managed to step away from the nuclear weapons research he had been doing. Um, and move towards more fundamental theoretical physics. And the thing he's most famous for, other than the nuclear weapons stuff, is his, his paper in 1967, which described the conditions that would have to be satisfied if a perfectly symmetric collection of matter and antimatter were to become tilted in favor of matter in the early universe, shortly after the Big Bang. We call these the Sakharov conditions today. 
So the Sakharov conditions tell us that for a universe to end up with more matter than antimatter, three things must be true. The first is that there must be some physical process that creates or destroys matter and antimatter in some imbalanced way. That's necessary to change the amount of matter relative to antimatter and vice versa. The second condition is that whatever this process is, it has to favor matter over antimatter in order to make matter win in this asymmetry. And lastly, the third condition says that this process must have been happening in a very rapidly changing environment. So we're going to go through these three conditions and talk about them in way more detail. So this first condition, there existing some process that can change the amount of matter relative to antimatter, there's a more technical way to put this. So we'd call this baryon number violation. Uh, Baryon number is a kind of like a charge, but something that quarks carry. Um, Every quark has a baryon number of a third and all the other known particles have no baryon number. So if you can create baryon number without creating anti-baryon number with anti-quarks, then you can uh, satisfy this first condition. But if this condition is really satisfied, if baryon number isn't a conserved quantity in the universe, it implies some pretty crazy things. Most notably, that protons should decay. Protons are made of quarks, and quarks can't exist on their own. So protons are actually the lightest particle with baryon number. And so traditionally, physicists would think that protons can't decay, because there's no lighter particle with baryon number for them to decay into. So for the same reason, the electron is stable because it has electric charge and there's nothing lighter with electric charge. That stabilizes the electron. We think the proton is stable simply because there's nothing lighter with baryon number. But if baryon number isn't conserved, like we had previously assumed, then protons could decay. We know they decay really, really slowly, but if Sakharov is right and that first condition was somehow satisfied, then protons themselves should be unstable. But protons aren't just your average particle. They're a fundamental building block of all atoms. So if we wait long enough, all the atoms in our universe, all the protons and all of our atoms should just fall apart. Fortunately, this happens really, really slow. Um, We have experimental constraints saying the proton's lifetime is at least 10 to the 34 years. So that means in the whole history of the universe, if you took 10 to the 24 protons, one or fewer of them would have decayed so far. So this is a really, really slow process, but it has to be going on at some level to satisfy Sakharov's first condition. We haven't actually seen proton decay yet, but physicists are looking for it in experiments. You know, Fermilab, where I work, they're constructing an experiment called Dune to be deployed in the Homestead Mine in South Dakota. And it's an enormous uh, uh, tank of of ordinary material with uh, very sensitive detectors all around it. And if the the atoms, the protons inside of that material even occasionally decay, we should be able to see that sort of process. And there's something else that suggests that protons can decay and that baryon number then isn't conserved. It has to do with what people in the 60s were figuring out about black holes. It's just a theoretical argument. But people studying general relativity around that time uh, proved something called the no-hair theorem. The no-hair theorem basically says that if you take a black hole, if you know the, the mass of that black hole, how fast it's rotating, and how much electric charge it has, 
then you know everything there is to know about that black hole. In other words, two black holes with the same mass, angular momentum, and electric charge are identical. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart. So now imagine you have two different black holes. One you made by putting a bunch of quarks together, or a bunch of protons together, collapsing them together to make a, a black hole. And um, let's say you did it with protons and electrons, so there's no electric charge when you're done. And then you do that again somewhere with antiprotons and positrons. Again, no electric charge. The two black holes have the same mass, they have the same angular momentum and the same charge. But according to no hair theorem, they're identical. So you've taken something with a bunch of baryon number and made it into something identical to something with a bunch of anti-baryon number. So you've just violated baryon number. So from what people were learning about general relativity around the time that Sakharov was doing this work, it seemed to say that at least his first condition probably is satisfied by nature, even if we've never observed it. So to be clear, it's not that black holes are the process that we're talking about that creates antimatter-matter asymmetry, but this idea just shows that it's possible to satisfy this condition with things that we know are true about gravity and black holes. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not that we think in the early universe black holes were the intermediary that, that, that solved our problem, but it's at least a proof of principle that stuff we know about general relativity seems to say baryon number violation seems to be possible. So let's move on to condition two. Whatever satisfies this condition must prefer matter over antimatter. Physicists or particle physicists would call this uh, the violation of charge parity symmetry. So I'm going to unpack that. That's a bunch of a bunch of words kind of glued together. So um, first, let me say what physicists mean or even mathematicians mean when they say something is a symmetry. What they mean is that there's some action, some operation you can do to something, and that operation leaves the thing unchanged. So if I have a perfect sphere, I can rotate it on its axis on any angle and I still have exactly the same shape. Nothing changes. That's because a sphere has this particular symmetry, this rotational symmetry. If I had some like randomly shaped rock, if I rotate it, now it's a different shape. I can see it it becomes a different object when you rotate it. So that doesn't have the same kind of symmetry that a sphere has. So the kind of symmetries we're talking about here are the symmetry of charge and the symmetry of parity. The symmetry of charge says that if I take a bunch of particles, I take all the positive charges and turn them into negative charges, and I take all the negative charges and turn them into positive charges, you don't really change anything. Everything behaves in exactly the same way. Well, this kind of makes sense, right? So if I take two negatively charged things, we know that like charges repel, and now I simultaneously turn them both into positively charged things. Well, now they're still going to repel because they're like charged. Um, Or if I have a negative and a positive, well, they're attracting. I switch them now, and they're still attracting. So it kind of seems like what it means for something to be positive or negative charge is just a definition. And we could have done it, defined it the other way around, and it would be fine. So if you had guessed in the 1950s whether you think charge would be a symmetry of physics, you'd say, sure, probably it would be. And the laws of electromagnetism do obey charge symmetry in the way that Dan described. But we'll see that charge symmetry is actually broken in interactions mediated by the weak force, which includes things like radioactive decay. The other kind of symmetry we're talking about here is parity symmetry, which is basically saying if you have a a system and um, I take the mirror image of that system, 
the physics won't be any different. So in terms of the laws of physics, most people would assume that the universe does obey parity symmetry. After all, there's no reason to assume that it wouldn't. Clockwise and counterclockwise don't seem like they should be different, but it turns out they are. So in 1956, experiments showed for the first time that parity symmetry is violated. Um, and in particular, it's not violated by the force of gravity or by the electromagnetic force or even by the strong nuclear force, but it is strongly violated by the weak nuclear force. It turns out that this force only acts on a particle if it's spinning counterclockwise, and it only interacts on, or acts on an antiparticle, a particle of antimatter, if it's spinning clockwise. This took, it took everyone off guard. No one expected this. But it turns out that just this weird feature of nature, the weak force cares of whether a particle is spinning clockwise or counterclockwise when deciding whether it's going to act on it or not. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. So there are situations where charge symmetry and where parity symmetry are each broken. But physicists then figure that maybe the combination of charge symmetry and parity symmetry might hold. For example, if you change a particle's charge from positive to negative, or vice versa, and you switch it from moving clockwise to counterclockwise, the weak force should still act on it the same way. So the system should stay the same. This is called charge parity symmetry, or CP symmetry, as the insiders call it. And for a long time, people really expected it to hold. Until 1964. And in 1964, they observed these particles called kaons, which are basically a strange quark bound together with an anti-down quark or a down anti-quark. And kaons could spontaneously become anti-kaons, which makes sense. That's what the, our understanding of laws of physics say should happen. And anti-kaons can become kaons spontaneously. But the weird thing is that they weren't doing these transitions at the same rates. Kaons didn't become anti-kaons at the same rates that anti-kaons became kaons. And that's what we mean by CP violation. There's a bias in the kinds of laws of physics that are causing these interactions to happen that don't treat matter and antimatter in the same way. There's a bias of one over the other. So this satisfies Sakharov's second condition. CP symmetry is broken, and so there does exist some process that prefers matter to antimatter. But this kaon process doesn't happen nearly enough to actually explain the matter-antimatter asymmetry on its own. Kind of like the first condition, we have good reasons to think that baryon number conservation is violated, but we've never seen it. So that, you know, it's very, very feeble. Here we have observations that tell us that CP symmetry is violated, but it's not violated nearly enough in any of the interactions we've ever observed to explain how the early universe played out the way it did. So it's more of a, in principle, we see it can happen, 
but it doesn't really solve our problem, at least not all the way. And lastly, there's Sakharov's third condition. We described this earlier as saying that the process that prefers matter over antimatter, this process that we've been describing with the first two conditions, it has to take place in a period of time in the universe that is very volatile and rapidly changing. This is because if it were some sort of slow, steady process, the interactions would work both ways, and ultimately you'd just reach equilibrium, and equilibrium would have the same amount of matter as antimatter. So you wouldn't solve the problem. But you know, somehow we pulled the universe out of equilibrium through some sort of dramatic, volatile, rapidly changing stuff, and uh, that made it possible for matter to win over antimatter. We don't know how this happened, but maybe there was some sort of like sudden phase transition. So you're probably used to hearing phase transition refer to something like liquid water freezing to become solid ice, or liquid water boiling to become water vapor. But in cosmology, we often talk about phase transitions of the entire universe. When the universe was very young, it was extremely hot and dense, and in a very different state than it is in now. But over time, it expanded and cooled, and over that period of time, the universe underwent phase transitions that caused the laws of physics to adjust. And we have a couple of examples of this, like uh, there's something called the QCD phase transition, quantum chromodynamics, where quarks started to bind together into protons and neutrons for the first time. That would have been a, the sort of con uh, conditions where, where uh, you, know, you might have reached uh, a state out of equilibrium. Um, there was another phase transition called the electroweak phase transition that happened even earlier in our universe's history. Um, maybe that had something to do with it. And then also we, you could have imagined that the universe might have had some sort of exotic substance in it that fell out of equilibrium and start, stopped interacting with the stuff around it. And then maybe it decayed in, in, in a really uh, you know, energy injecting way into the early universe. And maybe that led to the sort of conditions where matter could have triumphed over antimatter. These are all just speculations. We have a lot of good ideas, but very little uh, way to test any of them at this point. So we've gone through the three Sakharov conditions, and now we know exactly what it takes for the universe to satisfy this matter-antimatter asymmetry. But that doesn't tell us why it happened. There are lots of ideas out there, and we don't know which is right, but we'll just cover a few of the possibilities. I don't want to give the listener the impression that like there's one or two front-leading candidates and we think that's the right answer. We, we just don't know. Um, but let me describe like a couple of sketches of ideas that might have gone on. So, or might've, might've, might've satisfied all three of these conditions. So imagine there's some sort of like really heavy particle that if you just let it sit there for a while, maybe it, you know, lasts for a millionth of a second or a thousandth of a second before it does anything. And when it does that thing, it like, dumps a bunch of matter into the universe without dumping any antimatter. So we go back really close to the Big Bang, really, really hot. The particles can collide and occasionally make these weird exotic things I'm describing. Those weird things I'm describing sit around doing pretty much nothing for that millionth or thousandth of a second. When we get to that point, a thousandth or a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, those particles decay. They dump this extra matter into the universe without dumping extra antimatter into the universe. 
gently changing the ratio matter to antimatter. All the matter annihilates with all the antimatter, leaving only a little bit of matter behind, solving the problem. So let me explain how that solved all or ad addressed all three of Sakharov's conditions. First of all, those decays violate baryon number. They make baryon number without making anti-baryon number. Um, secondly, it, it does it, 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 it uh, so it, it, there isn't a, an opposite version. There's not an antimatter version of this thing decaying that does it the opposite direction. So it's CP violating. And it's decaying at a time where it's not interacting with the bath of particles all around it. It's out of equilibrium with the bath. It very suddenly and, and rapidly and in a volatile way dumps this energy in the form of extra matter into the universe. So this is an example of a simple way that we could solve, address all three of Sakharov's conditions. Um, again, we don't have any evidence that that happened, but um, it's one way that something like that could have happened. So what kind of particles could satisfy a situation like this? So um, I'll tell you about my favorite one. It's not even really a particle. It's the possibility that maybe there might have been very small black holes in the early universe. Um, I've been working on this lately. And um, very small black holes will, they don't decay exactly, but they evaporate into different kinds of matter. And you could imagine that these black holes were formed very, very early in the universe's history. Uh, maybe a millionth or a thousandth of a second later, they evaporate entirely into other stuff. And maybe part of the stuff that they decayed into or evaporated into, those things then um, decayed mostly to matter. So it's not the black hole actually solving the first and second conditions. They give they solve the third condition, but the first two conditions then get solved by this other kind of particle. Maybe that particle has something to do with a grand unified theory or maybe something else. It's anyone's guess. So whether it be caused by primordial black holes in the early universe or by some other process, the matter-antimatter asymmetry problem is definitely one of the biggest open questions in cosmology right now. And while we don't have an answer yet, we can learn a lot from the process of asking the question. This episode was produced and edited by me, Shalma Wegsman. Research and writing is done by Dan Hooper and I. Dan is a theoretical physicist at Fermilab and the University of Chicago and is the author of many books, including most recently, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds. All music in Why This Universe is produced by Jake Kleinbaum. Thank you so much for your support and for listening, and we hope you tune in next time to Why This Universe. <laughs>